in Revelation 5, 9 and Revelation 7, 9, when they give this glorious image of worshiping God in eternity, God is speaking of whole people groups. He says the nations, he says the tribes, the tongues or the languages, right? That to me conveys a sense that there is something beautiful in the diversity globally of different kinds of people, the different foods we eat, the different languages we speak, the different styles of clothing and dance and all of that. And all of that's going to be redeemed and preserved to a certain extent in the eschaton. We're not going to become some bland, uniform people. There's something about the 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 manifold, splendiferous, wondrous differences that God says is good and reflects who God is more accurately than if we all uh, spoke the same way, ate the same things, practiced the same customs. You know what I mean? I am Dr. Jamar Tisby. I'm a historian, author, and a speaker. Welcome to Language of God. I'm your host, Jim Stump. One of the main topics we address at Biologos is what it means to be human. We think this is really interesting and important to engage from both scientific and theological perspectives. When asking what it means to be human in our culture today, it doesn't take long for the question of race to arise. Science pushes us to say that race is only a social reality. Races as we have identified them do not track with genetic differences. So where did the social reality of races come from? Sadly, Christian religion has had a prominent role to play in that development. That's a lot of what we talk about in this episode with Jamar Tisby. In 2020, he published The Color of Compromise, The Truth About American Church's Complicity in Racism, which became a New York Times bestseller. Then in 2021, he published How to Fight Racism, and now just released is a young reader's edition for How to Fight Racism. Tisby is also the co-founder of The Witness, a black Christian collective and co-host of the Pass the Mic podcast. We at Biologos are not pushing conversations on race because of white guilt or out of a desire to be woke. We do so because of our commitment to the theological doctrine that all people are created in the image of God, and because historically people of African descent have been treated as less than human in this country, and that has led to ongoing systemic disadvantages for all people of color. We hope that by talking to people like Jamar Tisby, we might all become more aware of this situation and take responsibility for creating a more just society. Let's get to the conversation. Jamar Tisby, we are so glad to have you here. Welcome to the podcast. Are you kidding me? I've been called up to the big kids table. This is great. This is great. Thank you. Well, we'll get to uh, talking about race and the church and your new book for young readers. But first, if we could, let's situate that with uh, some of your own story. Maybe start by telling us a little bit about where you came from. What was your family like growing up? Uh, well, as they say it in the Austin Powers franchise, the details of my life are quite inconsequential. But <laughs> oh, no. since you asked... <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know you were going to get that on the biologos. That's right. that's that's just the beginning. Um, <laughs> so I, I grew up in Waukegan, Illinois, which is north of Chicago, and uh, I grew up in the the Michael Jordan era and uh, the Bulls 
six Pete era. So there's no <laughs> debate about the goats. I may have just alienated half your listeners, but you're never going to convince me otherwise. So, um, our family was not especially religious. Our family was not especially religious, but there was no kind of hostility there. It just wasn't high on the radar, uh, which meant I, I didn't become a Christian until uh, high school. Um, I should say, though, I, I went to Catholic school. So it, it was, hmm. you know, it was it was all it was saturating my education in a lot of ways already. But uh, went to um, a white evangelical youth group, got invited by a classmate of mine and the rest is history. I became a Christian, classic evangelical conversion story <laughs> right down to saying the sinner's prayer. And, um, you know, but it stuck. It stuck with me and uh, became a Christian. And I started going to the white evangelical church associated with the youth group. And so race has always kind of been part of the my religious journey. It's always been there. Um, but it, you know, back in high school and then even into college, I didn't really have the language, uh, to, to articulate or, or, uh, explain what I was feeling or going through. So it was just kind of a thing. Um, but I was just trying to learn about Jesus and the Bible and all that good mm. stuff. And, and that's some of my early story. Mm. Well, and because we are biologos, we have to ask about experiences with science in your background. I saw yeah. that earlier in your career, you taught sixth grade science in the Mississippi Delta region. <laughs> Any interesting reflections from that time period? So, um, you know, in, in many schools, they will place teachers where the need is, <laughs> not, mm -hmm. not necessarily where the teachers have expertise. <laughs> and so I had no formal background in science. Uh, I don't think I took anything but the um, physics of music undergrad <laughs> and uh, barely squeaked by in that. So, um, but I did learn a lot. I, I, I learned yeah. a lot about science. I learned, we did a big unit on erosion. That was one of our favorites. <laughs> um, earlier though, before I became a teacher, I used to want to be a zoologist. Oh, nice. We had a uh, neighborhood that, that, you know, developer, real estate developers haven't quite, hadn't quite discovered at that time. So there were all these woods around our house and it was a day and age when, you know, you went outside in the morning and yeah, you came back when the streetlights came on, but parents didn't want you back until the streetlights came on. <laughs> right. So we were outside all day, every day, especially in the summer. And I remember finding owl pellets with like mm -hmm. uh, mouse bones in it, snake <laughs> skins that had been shed uh, following footprints. And so I just loved being outdoors. I loved animals. And, uh, for a time in middle school, I thought I wanted to just study animals. So mm. that's, that's, that's about the extent of my formal foray into science. Oh, nice. Well, you ended up becoming a historian. Your PhD is in history, right? That's correct. When did you first uh, think that was the educational or vocational path you wanted to pursue? It was a confluence of events. It was around 2015. I was finishing up my MDiv at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, and uh, it was looking more and more like I was not going to go into traditional uh, pastoral ministry in a local congregation, but I wasn't sure what I was going to do. This was also the time when uh, the Black Lives Matter hashtag goes viral. So mm -hmm. it's just a couple of months after Mike Brown and Ferguson and the uprisings are still occurring. And I'm trying to make sense of this situation just like everyone else. And as I'm 
reading articles and, and looking into the background, I'm finding that historians have the most helpful things to say. So they're talking about redlining. They're talking about the history of policing. They're, they, they, they seem to have this knowledge about how we got here that I had never been exposed to. And then I also had a very good friend, Dr. Otis Pickett, who uh, teaches at Mississippi College currently. And uh, he had just finished up his uh, PhD from the University of Mississippi. So we had all these long conversations and he helped introduce me to, suit some, to some folks and, and the department at the University of Mississippi. And I had my wife's blessing, so that was the most mm -hmm. important thing. So I went mm -hmm. ahead and applied and got in. Well, good. Well, I understand there's uh, some complexity around that story, where it stands, <laughs> and you've told some of that on the on the Pass the Mic podcast and would refer people there. Um, you were on a path, at least, to being a pretty big deal within conservative, reformed circles of American Christianity <laughs> and I've been around enough of those to know that there's often a kind of, say, superficial desire for diversity when it's really just a desire to get people who might look a little different on the outside, who, but who may think just like the white people. So there's no real challenge to the power structures that exist, yeah. right? Yeah. And then, as you described there, 2015, high profile murders of black people by police, and especially 2016 in the presidential election. The lines of the culture wars were drawn in ways that maybe made it impossible for you to stay in these white evangelical circles. Is that a fair description of the situation, at least in broad strokes? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the way I put it oftentimes is in certain predominantly white spaces, they value black people and people of color for our presence, but not our perspective. Mm -hmm. So we're there. And aesthetically, <laughs> it's appealing. Uh, it makes us all feel good about ourselves that, hey, we're, we, we have diversity here. Um, but then when it comes to actually addressing uh, the urgent issues of our communities, much of which have to do with race, uh, then the, the needle moves only so far as the most fragile white person can handle, to put mm. it that way. Uh, yeah. So, so in other words, um, whether it's how sort of forthrightly you speak out about racism, uh, what organizations you partner with, who you invite to to the pulpit, whatever it might be, predominantly white organizations, including churches, tend to move at the pace of the people they're going to tick off, or who are they anticipate ticking off, and so the, the, it's a fundamental issue of who is at the center of these decisions. So many people, the Bible would call it a fear of man, are putting uh, the, the powerful white folks, oftentimes they're the biggest tithers and have important titles outside of church, etc. They're putting those folks at the center and saying, how much can I do? What are the limits based on the sensibilities of these folks? Rather than centering the marginalized. By definition, the marginalized are on the borders. They're on the edges. So what does it look like to center the marginalized and make decisions that say, how can I best prevent harm and promote flourishing for what the Bible calls the least of these? That's a significant shift. Imagine making a decision about budget. Imagine making a decision about how to speak about a, a high profile uh, incident of racism when you have those different constituents 
at the center. And so I just found that in a lot of these, and this is the deep South, this is conservative Presbyterianism and everything associated with it. It's reformed and it's evangelical. I found in many of those circles that if I wanted to talk about racial justice the way I thought it warranted, there just wasn't going to be much space for me. It's mm, sad. I'll, t- I'll give you an example. I mean, my own church, I'm an intern there. They canceled preaching. They, they canceled a, 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 um, a Sunday where I was going to preach. I was too hot to handle at that point. It wasn't that every single person disagreed with me. It was that enough people within the congregation uh, uh, were upset by things I was writing and saying that the elders thought it wouldn't be a good. Now, mind you, I had preached there multiple times before. I'm an intern. I'm required to preach there. Right. Um, There was a time immediately following the November 2016 election when uh, I spoke about not feeling safe at my white evangelical church. Oh, they went to town with that one. And then, uh, as folks got a hold of this, um, hour long takedown video podcast about me, uh, speaking engagements, preaching engagements nationwide canceled in within days. Uh, so, so it was real and it wasn't just like trolls on social media is, is all I'm trying to convey. And, and I just don't know, like, okay, maybe we disagree on these things. Um, is that the extent to which we need to go uh, within the household of God? Apparently so. Mm. Very sorry for all of that. It's hard to hear. Um, I think we do need to hear a bit more, though. Um, and I want to talk a little bit more in a bit about some of the history of evangelicalism and racism, but... Staying on your story for a little bit, the uh, this this term evangelical has been so co-opted by politics nowadays that lots of us shy away from using it. But there's probably something, at least to the adage that you can take the man out of evangelicalism, but you can't take all the evangelicalism <laughs> out of a man. At least that's true for me, I think. Um, what of that theological conservatism did you bring with you? I mean, you know, if we look at the history of the church and theology, black Christians and white Christians don't disagree on a whole ton of the foundational elements. Right. Like 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 black churches aren't forming because of controversy, controversies over the deity or incarnation of Christ. <laughs> right. like, that's not like, that's not the disagreement we have with white Christians. It's racism. Um, so throughout the history of us Christianity, you're going to find a lot more in common doctrinally than different. What you will find is a difference in emphasis. Uh, certainly in most black churches, you're going to find uh, a much more forthright and free like to preachers who are listening, you know the difference when you are in front of a congregation where you feel like you can say hard things, uh, even if it's hard, you know, but, 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 but they trust you, you're empowered to say those things versus when you're in an environment where you feel like you're walking on eggshells. So, so, so the freedom to speak about racial justice is a crucial difference because there's a priority to it that's existential. If black people don't address racism, it affects our livelihood. It affects our well-being. It even mm-hmm. affects our life <laughs> outcomes, right? Um, so, so we speak about it much more forthrightly and freely 
in um, in many church spaces. But yeah, I mean, you know, so for, but for me in, in particular, because I was introduced to the faith through white evangelicalism, I still have a, a, a tender heart for white evangelicals and churches and institutions that are predominantly and historically white and evangelical. So a lot of folks accuse me online of just sort of abandoning, you know, this branch of the church. You don't know my story. Like I could never abandon that history, much less even now still constantly working with, talking to, interacting with in very meaningful ways from friendships to professional relationships with white evangelicals in the hopes that we can together build a healthier church through the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Let's uh, lean into that aspect a little bit more, because I think this is really interesting and really important, because now you've you've founded The Witness, which is described as a black Christian collective to educate, encourage, and empower black Christians in their communities. So tell us a little bit about the work you have going on there, and then I'll bring it back to how uh, this interacts with with uh, white Christianity too. I am so thrilled about the work of The Witness Inc. We now have two divisions, the Black Christian Collective, which is our multimedia and educational branch. And we also have The Witness Foundation, which is our philanthropic branch. Let me tell you about these two real briefly. The Witness of Black Christian Collective is our attempt to build our own tables. We started out as the Reformed African American Network, which was ideologically, in a sense, it was us saying, uh, hey, can we pull up a seat at a table populated by white reformed and evangelical individuals and institutions? <laughs> and will you make room for us? And can we kind of timidly raise our hand and say, hey, we're here. Can we say something? And what we found, especially with the um, uh, tragic proliferation of anti-black police brutality and all these cell phone videos coming out and, and, and this renewed conversation on racial justice, we found that those tables were never built for us. And then mm. at a, again, as I said earlier, they valued our presence, but not our perspective. Like, okay, you can pull up a seat, but don't say anything. You know, don't, don't try to shift the conversation. Um, or we'll handle your little pet topic of race for a day or two, but then we're moving on. Uh, so we decided, you know what? <laughs> it's the internet age. We don't actually have to sit at these same tables. We can build our own. And so the Black Christian Collective is a, a website. Go to thewitnessbcc.com. And we have blog posts and articles. We have a, not just one podcast, but a whole suite of podcasts. We have videos. And it's our attempt to address the core concerns of Black people from a Christian perspective. I'm so proud of the work they're doing. Yeah, it's really great. The, the outgrowth of that is not just the information, but the action. So, so the outgrowth of that is the Witness Foundation, which we launched in October 2020 formally. This is a one-of-a-kind peerless program. I, I don't think it's, I, I think it's unmatched. I think it's best-in-class program. What the centerpiece of the Witness Foundation is a fellowship that we offer to five black Christian leaders. This year it's six, two of them are in the same region and they're splitting the award. We offer it to emerging black Christian leaders as basically equipping the next generation of, of black Christian civil rights leaders. So each of these folks that we've chosen in our initial cohort is the leader of their own 
nonprofit focused on justice. One is focused on helping uh, recently freed uh, incarcerated people transition back to uh, regular life. Another is focused on making churches more accessible to black disabled Christians. Uh, it spans the gamut. And get this. They get, over the course of two years, $100,000 each to go toward their ministries in whatever way they see fit. They can pay themselves, they can hire staff, they can use it for marketing research, infrastructure, whatever they, we trust them. And so often when black people in general, black Christians in particular, um, try to fundraise, there's not the trust factor. And people are, are saying, well, use the money this way or you can't use it that way. We trust these folks. And in addition to $100,000 investment, they also get mentoring and training, and they have the cohort experience with other people who are on a similar journey with them. I think it's a best-in-class program. Mm -hmm. I think you should go to thewitnessinc.com and make a donation right now. There we go. <laughs> Biologos audience, there's the marching orders. Call to action. How, how uh, competitive of a program is this to get into for people? We had an, over 90 applicants on oh, wow. our first round, and we chose six. Hmm. Well, very good. To uh, relate this then to Christianity more broadly in America, I'd like to ask another question here, because I think some people will will see a kind of tension here in what you're doing as though it's separating out Christian worship by races when we should be trying to do a better job of integrating them. And I, I want to be careful here not to convey the wrong impression, because I think what you're doing is amazing, and I will have something else to say about that in just a minute. But maybe first you can respond to that, particularly with that line from MLK himself about it being appalling that the most segregated hour of Christian America is 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. How does... How how does this work you're doing now fit within that sort of vision of reconciling races within Christianity? Well, one of the things that emerges when you study history is that there would be no black church without racism in the white church. Hmm. I know that hits folks heavy because what let, happens? Let us hear it. <laughs> what happens in a in a white supremacist society is it makes race hyper visible for those considered not white, and it makes race nearly invisible for those considered mm -hmm. white. So white people seldom think of themselves as having a race; they're just John or Bill or Susan, right? And they don't think about maneuvering the world racially as a white person, whereas black people and people of color, we have no choice. We're, I mean, listen, when I, I'm at my in-laws now, they live in the Kansas City area. When I drive up through the Delta and parts of Arkansas and Missouri, I am hyper aware of where we are, whether I can stop in a gas station to use the bathroom and feel comfortable. Mm. Whether the police are around and I get pulled over in these heavily white areas like that's just a, if I walk into your church, uh, one of the first things I do just by reflex and not just me, every black person I know, we, 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 we scan the room. Are there any other black people here? <laughs> Am I the only one? How often do white people even think to do that? Right. Right. Uh, so so there's this consciousness of race that as black people and people of color 
we have to have that many white people don't cultivate, don't have it. And um, it sticks out when we interact in church, right? It sticks out when um, all the sermon illustrations you're using are from, you know, cultural background. I don't understand, right? Like, 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 like you're referencing Seinfeld and I'm like, what, what about, you know, living single or whatever it might be. You're talking about friends and whatever, you know, um, that's a, a simple example, but then it gets to deeper things like, like where your church is located. Am I going to a predominantly white, wealthy, upper middle-class suburb and I'm the only black person, one of the few people of color there. I'm not comfortable all the time in that environment, the songs we sing, even the themes within the songs, right? So, so anyway, the, the, the divide is deep and it's much mm-hmm. more than skin deep. Okay. And, and I think most black people were perfectly fine worshiping alongside other people, as long as it means, it, it, if it doesn't mean erasing my history and my heritage right. and my culture. Right. So in the, in the Biologos office this past year for one of our professional development activities, we had the whole staff watch the PBS documentary by Louis Gates Jr., The Black Church. And it was really powerful, exposed some of the deficiencies of my own education and misunderstandings of the Black Church. But one of the, one of the main takeaways for me from that is in response to this question I was just asking you about here, because it seems there's this real difference between, say, the segregation of Jim Crow and separate but equal on the one hand and black churches on the other, where I got the feeling from this documentary that the the formation of black churches were more about African-Americans saying to white people, will you just let us have this one thing without coming in here and messing it up? (laughs) That it's an expression of their agency and power rather than a symbol of being excluded. So it's so funny the way those things work. So, so it's like white people benefit from racism and crafted, you know, the structures to literally keep people separate, excluded, marginalized at the bottom and but it's black people who are divisive <laughs> because <laughs> we form communities right. where our dignity is affirmed like the mm. re, like I go like I said there would be no black church without racism in the white church that goes back to the theology conversation we were having earlier we weren't having these deep theological disagreements about the nature of Christianity we just didn't want to be treated like second class citizens in the household of God and that is a feeling that persists to this day. By the way, black people don't just have to go to white churches. White people can come to black churches. We just don't mm. want you to come in and colonize it. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, you right. know, you can look at the Emmanuel Nine. They welcomed this white supremacist murdering terrorist into their Bible study with open arms, sat with him for over an hour before he started shooting and killing. But the black church has always been welcoming to people who want to worship the Lord and who respect our the fact that we're made in the image of God, just like you are too. Um, It really upsets me if people think that black people are the ones being divisive. Racism is divisive. White supremacy is divisive. We're trying to survive. That's all. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. I uh, want to uh, talk some about your books here, but first, if we could talk just a little bit about race with respect to science and religion, since again, we are biologos and we are painfully aware that 
science and religion conversations have been overwhelmingly white. But in following this ARC model you've proposed, ARC, where A is for that awareness, we're now trying to build more relationships, the R, and uh, relationships with people of color. And we're committed, the C, to pursuing not just diversity, but also equity and inclusion and justice. And we are not perfect and maybe not even a model organization in this respect, but we're committed to keep trying. And one of the ways we're trying is by addressing topics that are more relevant to people of color. And we're still a science and faith organization, so we're not just going to abandon that mission. mission. But it turns out there really are topics that both science and religion can speak into with some authority, which are relevant, even vital for uh, people of color. And the most obvious of these is race itself. So can you speak a little bit from your perspective? What does science have to say about race and then theology and the doctrine of the image of God and what that has to say about race? Make a little speech here, if you would, to appeal <laughs> to the science and religion crowd of why this is an important and relevant topic. Well, science can be used for good or for ill, as we all know, and that's the same with race and racism. So in the 19th century, mid to late 19th century, you have uh, this whole field of pseudoscience emerging about <laughs> race and uh, dividing all of humanity into this social construction of race. I call it social construction because we know mm -hmm. it's not rooted in biology. Uh, so this is where you get Caucasian, Mongolian, Negroid, those kinds of, of categorizations. And of course, uh, the scientists making this up classify their own people in the highest, most intelligent, most objectively beautiful category. <laughs> Interesting how that happens. Right. Just so happened that we're in the best group and we're making, we're, we're writing this stuff, right? Uh, but that catches on society-wide and in the church because it seems to give an objective veneer to the prejudices that are practiced both individually and institutionally. And so that really caused a lot of problems uh, for society as a whole to think that people based on their physical features are inferior or superior in certain types of ways. And there's some really, really uh, pernicious and ugly comparisons between uh, black people, particularly residing in Africa, and apes mm -hmm. and comparing us to animals. And there, there, there was one um, historical tract called uh, this was this was tackling the, the question of the humanity, the, the very humanity of black people. Um, it was called the Negro, a beast or in the image of God. And the author's conclusion was that a Negro, a black person, was more like unto a, an animal than an image bearer of God like white people. And thus, our proper place in his estimation was subordinate and even enslaved. Uh, so, so science bolsters some of that. But science can also undo that. Mm -hmm. so science can also tell us, actually, <laughs> we, couldn't, we couldn't actually physically reproduce if we were different species, like that, that's <laughs> not what happens, right? Science can tell us um, with uh, DNA mapping just how much we have in common right. mm -hmm. um, and, and how what we call race is really a function of the amount of melanin in our skin, you know? So science also gives us a great backing to say this whole kind of social construct of race is just that. It's imagined. It's made up. It has real world effects. 
but it's not rooted in biology or even ontology if we're, t- if we're talking theology. So, yes. Mm. <laughs> so then uh, take that conversation forward now from the perspective of theology and the image of God and the necessity for all of us to be included in that in order to do it properly. So I'm, I'm going to make a bold statement, but I stand behind it. If, if you make a, an analogy between uh, the Protestant European Reformation in the 16th century, and we know that a big, big central focus of that movement was salvation by grace through faith, not by works. You couldn't pay an indulgence and, 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 and buy your way to heaven kind of a thing. So the doctrine of soteriology or the doctrine of salvation, the, 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 the same role that that played in the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago, if there is to be a reformation in the church in the 21st century, I think the core doctrine would be the image of God. The core doctrine would be the mind. Think about this. In the very first book, in the very first chapter of the Bible, God says in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, let us make humankind in our image. Let us make him in our likeness. That means every human being bears the fingerprints of God. And by the way, that's not just Christians. By the way, that's not just straight people. That's not just um, uh, people on the outside. It goes for incarcerated people. That's not just for people who speak your language. That's not for just people who have documents saying they can be in the country. This is radical for where we are right now. We live in the most diverse, pluralistic nation probably in the history of humanity. So don't you think it would be important that as Christians, we have a robust understanding of what it means to be a human and how to relate to one another, especially when we're different. That's why I think the image of God is so critically important. And for this conversation on race, clearly, clearly, it means that all people, inclusive of race and ethnicity, I used to say regardless, I say inclusive of Mm -hmm. race and ethnicity, are equal image bearers. But look, that is so theoretical. I don't know a person, even the, the person who I would vehemently dif- disagree on, with on every other topic. I don't know a person who would disagree with the statement. All people, including black and white people, are made in the image of God. That's easy to say. It's much harder to live out. And I wonder if uh, another one of the points I've seen you making here uh, needs to be highlighted as well, that we might, some people might go, yeah, we're all created in the image of God, but let me do it by myself over here with my kind of people, where we're missing something in that regard, right? I, I think I'm quoting you here, no single group can reflect the glory of God by itself. We need the diversity of all nations and tribes to paint a more complete portrait of God's splendor. Is the image of God in that sense, in your understanding, more of a communal characteristic of us than it is an individual characteristic of, of each of us? I mean, yes, you're right. And you want to talk about mind blowing, right? Like, so in our Western individualized kind of mindset, when we even talk about the, the image of God, we, we tend to think as an individual, one or the other person, we all bear the image of God. Seldom do we think collectively that we bear the image of God, but it just strikes me. It strikes me. In Revelation 5, 9 and Revelation 7, 9, when they give this glorious image of worshiping God in eternity, 
God is speaking of whole people groups. Mm, he says right. the nations. He says the tribes, the tongues, or the languages, right? That, to me, conveys a sense that there is something beautiful in the diversity globally of different kinds of people, the different foods we eat, the different languages we speak, the different styles of clothing and dance and all of that. And all of that's going to be redeemed and preserved to a certain extent in the eschaton. We're not going to become some bland, uniform people. There's something about <laughs> the 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 manifold, splendiferous, wondrous differences <laughs> that God says is good and reflects who God is more accurately than if we all uh, spoke the same way, ate the same things, practiced the same customs. You know what I mean? Mm, yep. So yep, I, I think there's going to be a lot of people real surprised in heaven. Like I love it. <laughs> I thought everybody's <laughs> going to be just like me. No, 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 boo-boo. no, no, no. Another topic that uh, Biologos has been deeply engaged in for the last couple of years is COVID because my, who can't my, my. be right. So there's an obvious scientific angle here with the understanding of the virus and development of vaccines and controlled studies about the efficacy of masks and so on. Listen, We've also has, has Biologos come out with your definitive trust the science statement oh yeah oh yeah okay i want to there's a retweet that one there's a big statement that that something like eight thousand people have signed now um, uh, related to that it's ridiculous but part of what we've done too is we've tried to address this from the perspective of christian faith of loving our neighbor of laying down some of our supposed rights for the good of other people and i know you've talked some about this too and particularly uh there are disproportionate outcomes again for people of color with regard to COVID. So what's the message that you're trying to get out about vaccines and masks? So this is one of the hardest parts of the contemporary racial justice movement is that so many people think that because we don't have race-based child slavery anymore, because we don't have legalized Jim Crow segregation and signs over drinking fountains, etc., that racism is a thing of the past. So what they fail to see is what you just mentioned, the disproportionate and negative impact on uh, black people and other people of color and the poor due to things like a pandemic. What they fail to see is that even when we're talking about climate change, it's most often black communities, communities of color, poor communities that are most adversely affected by pollution, by climate change, by all of the factors that go into that because we're located in these areas intentionally, right? Those are forms of contemporary racism that are a little more subtle. They're not as in your face as, oh, you can't come in the front door, go to the back for your food, right? Like that's overt. That's clear to see. So if we get rid of that, we've gotten rid of racism in a lot of people's minds. So what we're trying to get folks to see is the disparate impact, the inequity in like, why should it be the case that literal life expectancy is greater or lesser? You can trace that by race. Is it because black people don't want to live as long? (laughs) That's a ludicrous proposition. It's because of other institutional factors that literally make our lives more hazardous. And those are forms of racism. This is what white Christians in particular really struggle to see because 
as individualistic as Westerners are in general. Uh, Emerson and Smith show in their book, Divided by Faith, as sociologists, white evangelicals in particular, are hyper-individualistic. So they don't see the institutional and the systemic ramifications of racism and inequality. And if you point it out to them, they'll say it's fake news. It's fake science. It's whatever. Right. So that's the battle. The other battle is stereotypes. Right. That, oh, black people don't want to get the vaccine. When in reality, although there is vaccine hesitancy across different groups, a the hesitancy is different for each group. So when we as black people have a history of maltreatment by medical professionals, right, we're not right. as likely to trust. And then B, there's also a question not of vaccine hesitancy, but access. And it can be a lot harder for black people, communities of color, poor people to access the health and medical resources that other communities have. Hey, Language of God listeners. If you enjoy the conversations you hear on the podcast, we just wanted to let you know about our website, biologos.org, which has articles, videos, personal stories, and curated resources for pastors, students, and educators. And we've recently launched a new animated video series called Insights. These short videos tell stories and explore many of the questions at the heart of the faith and science conversation. You can find them at biologos.org insights, or there's a link in the show notes. All right, back to the show. I want to talk uh, now more specifically about some of the books that you've done. Um, the first two that you did, The Color of Compromise and How to Fight Racism, seem to first set up the problem and then show what we can do about it. Was that intended from the beginning to follow that sequence? Yes and no. I had both books in mind um, for a while. But but actually, I thought How to Fight Racism would be my first book, if I'm honest, um, because I came up with it uh, while I was doing my coursework for my PhD. And so I'm reading um, all these history books. I take, you know, three seminars a semester. Each one requires you to read a book a week. And so I'm reading literally dozens of stories. And the movement since about the 1960s among historians has been to look at um, historically marginalized groups, um, meaning black people and other people of color, women, the poor, uh, the voices of people we don't tend to hear from uh, in, in a lot of history. And so that meant reading a lot about racism. And I got to tell you, there's something that hits different when you actually read the details, because it's one thing mm -hmm. to say, oh, racism was bad. We had that before. It's another thing to read about the slave market in New Orleans and how they would take um, enslaved Africans, they would grease them up to make their, shin, their skin look shiny and healthy. They would parade women completely naked in front of ogling slave traders. Uh, they would separate children at the market. One slave trader would buy a nine-year-old boy or a six-year-old girl, and another slave trader would buy their mother or father, and, and the weeping and the wails. Can you imagine? Can you imagine somebody taking your child, selling them for labor, for life, and you'll never see them again? That was the reality. And then even more contemporarily, uh, lynching, how they lynched a pregnant woman, how they cut her stomach open the baby was still alive and they stomped it to death before they killed the mother 
how um, Martin Luther King, just a month into the Montgomery bus boycott, um, was on the verge of losing his faith because he just got uh, a call at midnight after coming home from an organizing meeting said, we're going to bomb your house and kill your wife and your children for the audacity of not wanting to sit in the back of the bus. And what got me so upset was all the Christians who knew it was happening and did nothing. So that's where the idea of complicity comes in. But I wanted How to Fight Racism to be my first book because I was just so darn mad. I, I'd like to think it was a righteous anger. You know, what, what should our response be at these egregious injustices? I think it's a righteous anger. So I, I wanted to say, well, let's do something. But I realized other people wouldn't feel my same sense of urgency, what Martin Luther right. King and his, I had the dream speech called The Fierce Urgency of Now. I realized they wouldn't have my same sense of urgency unless they knew the history that I did. So that's where the color of compromise comes in. Yeah, I think um, many of us want to acknowledge, yes, there's a problem and move as quickly as we can to the, so what can we do about it? But I, th I think you're right that... Uh, maybe we need to dwell a little longer on the problem, let it sink in a little deeper, not, not out of some exhibitionist kind of tendency of, can you believe this? But to say, seriously, this is really what's going on. And the, the comments you just made there is what I think I, we need to dwell on a little bit more is that there were Christians that knew about all these things and didn't do any of that. So quite a bit of the the color of compromise book is showing some of these details. What are, what are a couple of the episodes that particularly stand out to you in the history of our church in America that could have gone very differently, but they didn't. And they significantly affected the place of black people in the church and in society. You're raising such an important point that none of this was inevitable. Uh, our racial landscape, you, we didn't even have to have a racial system. Um, it was choices. It was deliberate, intentional choices by people who had power and authority. And they could have made different choices. One instance is um, in 1667, the Virginia Assembly was a group of white Anglican men. So these are Christians. They were responding to plantation owners who were worried about missionaries preaching the gospel to their enslaved population. They said, don't do that because it's going to give them these wacky ideas about freedom and equality. <laughs> so the assembly responded by saying, well, you know, we're Christians, so we should preach the gospel. But but here's what we'll do. Um, we'll say that if somebody believes the gospel and wants to be baptized, they'll be baptized, but it won't change their situation as an enslaved person. So they'll remain enslaved. And baptism would not mean physical, material, social, earthly equality. It just means spiritual equality. And that dichotomy has persisted to this day between the spiritual and the material and what liberation actually means. In addition, you see the confluence of three things, race, religion, and politics. You have this political entity making a law pertaining to religion that's focused on race. So that tells me we can talk about these things distinctly, but race, religion, and politics are always intertwined. So don't tell me I'm being too political when I'm talking about race. Don't tell me that talking about race isn't, doesn't have something to do with religion, because the Virginia Assembly thought it did. 
Um, another one that's very well known, but I think we sort of underplay the significance of it is, is how the major denominations, Methodists, Presbyterians, and Baptists all split over the issue of race-based chattel slavery and whether or not to preserve it. One of the things that people don't realize about the SBC splitting in uh, 1845 is they split over the question of whether a missionary, a white missionary, could hold slaves domestically and go preach the gospel to other black and brown people internationally. Because <laughs> some people were saying that's okay, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, Yikes. didn't even raise a flag for them, Ugh. you know. So, so, so the the ability uh, that that racism and white supremacy creates to have this cognitive dissonance is breathtaking and and astounding. Mm. Well, there's a established theological tradition in America that can sometimes be critical of the theology of black theologians, charging them to be unorthodox, usually by taking a line or an idea out of context. But there's more than a tad of hypocrisy there, right? <laughs> Since some of the white theologians held up as the very models of orthodoxy believed that chattel slavery was okay. Tell us a little about George Whitfield or Jonathan Edwards in this regard. This was shocking to me, and yeah, I need yeah. to hear it, and I know other people need to hear this. So George Whitfield was uh, uh, British, but... Uh, was an evangelist in the United States, was one of these folks who was a, a critical figure in the Great Awakening, where thousands of people came to faith um, and, and was, you know, initially pretty ambivalent about race-based chattel slavery until he found out how lucrative it could be. So somebody <laughs> essentially gifted him uh, some enslaved people. Um, they made him money. He then used that money to finance an orphanage in Georgia which again is that sort of cognitive dissonance, right? Yeah. Like you're, you're doing something ostensibly really good for orphan children, but you're doing so, you're financing it based on the economic exploitation and enslavement of African descended people. And the, both are true. And then the, 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 he went further. Georgia was originally um, ambivalent on slavery too. It wasn't founded as a slave state, but, Whitfield actually writes the governor of Georgia and says, hey, you got to get in on this slavery thing. Y'all can make a lot of money. It could establish Georgia. So, you know, it was it's it's very deflating um, in both Whitfield and Edwards. When I'm in seminary, when I'm reading these books on reform, theology, all this stuff, they're held up as these great models of Christian faith and theology. They're they're heroes of the faith. Jonathan Edwards, uh, many people call him America's greatest theologian which I said, did you consider anyone else other than white men? <laughs> or let's just make the bar even lower. Did you consider a non-slaveholder? Because we, don't, we know not only that um, Edwards and owned uh, and enslaved people, we know the name. Her name was Venus. She was 14. Enslaved, right? I believe, if I recall correctly, the bill of sale is on the back of a piece of parchment and, and on the other side is a sermon is written they didn't have a lot of money for paper back then so they they, they use paper over and over again with dissonance so so what i'm saying is as a historian i think we should learn about these people as historical figures as 
someone who went to seminary and has an MDiv, as somebody who is ordained to preach and teach, as a follower of Christ in the United States in particular, I don't think we should be holding up these folks as exemplars of theology or the faith. And what I say is, if you can find somebody who's saying substantially the same things, but they didn't own people, why not go with them? Right. <laughs> right. Just so. Well, there are lots more of those stories uh, that we could talk about. And I encourage everybody to read The Color of Compromise, really powerful in uh, exposing exposing this history of compromise. Um, but in the interest of time for this conversation, let's move a little to the next uh, book, How to Fight Racism, then. And particularly here, the reason for us talking right now is you have a brand new one out, a new edition of this, a young reader's edition Woo-hoo. of How to Fight Racism. How did this come about? Uh, <laughs> the folks at Zondervan said, this would be fantastic for kids. Will you adapt it? And I was like, I never thought of that, but yes. And it just so happens that we're in this time where teaching race, racism, white supremacy in schools is under assault. Right. Under the banner of critical race theory, which yep. we don't have to go into it, but we know this is a legal theory taught in law schools, not K through 12 schools. So what critical race theory has become is a junk drawer in which you throw everything I don't like about what people are talking about around race. Mm -hmm. So you throw in terms like white fragility and white privilege and um, institutional racism and whatever term or concept makes you feel uncomfortable becomes critical race theory, regardless of the merit of it regardless of whether it's actually critical race theory. So that's what's happening now. And as parents, we have agency. We don't have to take this. We don't have to lie down and lose this battle over education and awareness. Uh, so, so look, so many people I talk to, whether they read The Color of Compromise or How to Fight Racism, if they're adults, they say, I never knew. Right. And they say, I wish I had known sooner. So guess what, folks? It's our opportunity to make sure that the next generation of young people doesn't say the same thing as adults which means we need to take ownership of our children's education in general, but particularly around race. So How to Fight Racism, the Young Readers Edition, is ideal for kids 8 to 12 years old, 4th through 6th grade. You can go a little lower, a little higher, of course. might even be good for adults if you're like me. I was going to say, I I just had to read through this, and it might say more about me, but I thought it was really engaging, and maybe I need to read more young readers. I'm going to get myself in trouble. I think in some ways it's a better book because I had to think more carefully through, through, because racism so doesn't make sense. It so doesn't make sense. Like, 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 how can someone who is a different skin color be better or worse than someone else like mm-hmm. what, what sense does, and then how does it include certain kinds of people but not others like 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 how did the irish become white you know how mm-hmm. i mean it just it's not it has an internal insidious logic but it's really not logical so how do you t- explain that to a young person um 
so I use lots of stories and I use lots of personal stories. So let's talk about the Chicago Bulls, right? And I talk about mm-hmm. my um, time, my earliest memories of race. And I try to connect it in ways that young people will understand. But I still utilize the arc of racial justice, awareness, relationships, commitment. And then I, I, I adapted the steps along with my uh, co-writer, Josh Mosey. We adapted the steps for young people. So it's things like look at your school student handbook, see if there's anything about how to handle issues of um, bullying that are racially motivated. It's um, running for student government. If you wanna be part of changing the rules and the policies at your school, uh, it's all kinds of things, book clubs, all kinds of things that, that that even young people can do to actively get involved. The other cool part about the Young Readers Edition is sort of combines color of compromise and how to fight racism. So there's a big chunk in there about history. And so we talk about, in a, in a sensitive way for, for kids, we talk about Emmett Till. We talk about um, uh, uh, Rosa Parks. We talk about Ida B. Wells and Frederick Douglass. And we talk about Black history in general, right? And we talk about why there's the need, even as a young person, to get involved in the struggle against racism. So I'm super excited about it. It comes out January 4th, 2022. It's available for pre-order right now, wherever books are sold. It would be (laughs) so much fun to go through with it, go through it with your children, your, the young people, you get the adult version, they get the kids, you both get the kids version, whatever you want to do, but go through it together. And I think it'd be powerful. And, um, I referred a little bit earlier and you just mentioned the arc model that you've developed again, awareness, relationships, commitment, um, here in this book for the young readers, at least there, there feels like a really strong emphasis on relationships. One of the, the points you make here too is that studies have shown that if you don't make interracial relationships or friendships when you're young it's a lot harder when you get older is this an intentional uh way of getting at some of the more systemic issues that we hear about so much in the news or wherever that here you know the real issues are these systemic and critical race theory and all of this but that you're approaching it primarily through relationships to begin with is that a you 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 got my strategy. Okay. You uncovered it. Uh, <laughs> you you you're a scientist. You did your investigation. Um, yeah, I mean, look, kids have a lot more opportunity and a lot easier opportunity to develop relationships with people who are different. They're they're going to school, which means there's a bunch of people in their sort of age and stage of life where it's easier to make friends. When we're adults, you know, we're around younger people, older people. We got our own families. We don't, we, we just don't even meet as many people as young people do. So it's, it's, it's really a critical time. And then I think even based on our own experience, we can kind of see how this works. So, so oftentimes the adults, especially white people who really get it about race it started in their childhood. And so it's oftentimes um, kids who had a particular upbringing, they played sports and they were around a lot of people of color. They were missionary kids and literally lived cross-culturally in a different place, or they were military brats and they were thrown in with a whole bunch of different type of people. And because they had these formative experiences as kids being around people who were different, maybe even as a white person, they were in the minority in a certain uh, culture or community. They grow up with a much more expansive understanding of 
different people groups, different cultures, different ways that people experience the world based on their race or ethnicity or nationality or language or whatever it might be. So wouldn't it be great if we have, as adults who are concerned about racial justice, intentionally give our young people opportunities to interact with folks who are different so that they grow up knowing the beauty of diversity? And that's all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Nice. As a way then of connecting uh, these relationships with some of the more systemic issues of race in our country. I thought you gave a really helpful discussion in this book too for kids, helpful for me again, of the distinction between guilt and responsibility. Could you talk about that just a little bit with regard to people growing up saying, okay, I see that I may be part of one of these majority cultures, more privileged, and yet I feel bad about all this that's gone on and how do I handle that? You know, this sense of white guilt that gets talked about sometimes talk a little about the difference between guilt and responsibility. You know, I really think it's only troublesome when it comes to a topic like race, we understand the difference between guilt or culpability and responsibility in other contexts. For instance, if I buy a used car, (laughs) it's going to have some wear and tear on it. And so maybe the transmission is wonky. Now, I didn't do that. I didn't, I'm not the one who, who, who made that a problem. But it's my car now, and so it's my responsibility to fix it. You know, In the same way as you get hired at a new job. Uh, maybe you're the leader of the organization or you have some senior position, so you have some say in how things are going. And you get in and you find there's a lot of dysfunction. You know, units aren't communicating with one another. People are at each other's uh, throats being catty and gossipy. Uh, There's an unhealthy organizational culture. You didn't create that. You weren't even there. You're not, quote unquote, guilty. But now you're in the position where you're responsible for it. It's your problem now. This is the same thing that happens with race. None of us alive today enslaved people like they did 160 years ago. But the legacy of that, we're still responsible for, especially because in so many subsequent generations, people have kicked the can down the road expecting it to go away or someone else to handle the problem. We don't have time to get into it. So, you know, I'm not trying to open a can of worms, but that's the whole reparations discussion. Mm-hmm. Would have been a lot easier to handle in 1866, right after the Civil <laughs> War, when right. all the enslaved people were still alive. And it's like, who does it go to? Well, last year I was, you know, owned by this person. So that's who it goes to. Now it's a lot more complicated, right? Because people wanted to say, well, I'm not guilty of it, so I don't have any responsibility. Come on. Plus, that's not how the way, that's not the way Christianity works. Right. Like, like, like Jesus wasn't guilty. (laughs) Um, There are a lot of people within communities uh, that aren't guilty for the individual actions of people in their community. But the community has responsibility because they understand something like the common good. They understand something like like we're we're connected. We can't be. I I don't know. Maybe it's a function of being so individualistic. Just me. You know, just me and my um, my relationship with God, just me and my Bible, just me and my actions. And if I didn't do it, I don't have any responsibility. But I, again, I think it's very selective. 
Yep. And I think when it comes to race, that's when people say, well, I'm not guilty, so I'm not responsible. And I think if we look at other areas of life, we'll see that, that we're not consistent in that assertion. Yeah. Another uh, really helpful little metaphor you brought out in this that I think might help people to see some of the difference of the way race conversations work for white people versus people of color is the metaphor you made between the light switch and the smoke alarm. How are these and how do these speak to our experience with, with race? So for a lot of white people, racial justice and doing something about racism, it's like a light switch that you flip on and you flip off. So in 2020, when we see uh, uh, George Floyd in the video with the officer literally kneeling uh, on his neck for, for over nine minutes, as it turns out, um, oh, no, we got to do something. This is, a, this is a crisis. We need to march. We need to protest. We need to do a, 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 a black block on social media to so, show our solidarity, whatever it might be. We need to make Juneteenth a holiday. <laughs> um, uh, that happens, and then, and then it gets hard, and then it gets long. And then people in your family say, oh, you're, you, you're posting political stuff, or you're, 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 you're becoming one of those liberals. And then you, you flick the light switch off. And you go back to business as usual. You may feel bad, but you know you don't really do much differently. But for black people, it's different. Um, it's more like a smoke alarm. Smoke alarm is always on, and it has to be, because it has to be sensitive to smoke, sensitive to danger at all times, or you're going to get burned. And the same thing with race. We have to be sensitive to it, aware of it at all times, or it's going to be dangerous for us. And so white people realizing like, this is not something that we can turn on and off at the flick of a switch. It's not something that we can choose to ignore for very long because it, it, it always confronts us in some way, shape or form. And true solidarity, true allyship will turn that light switch on, cover it over with duct tape. So people it don't <laughs> flick it <laughs> off and, and, and stay in the struggle with us. Yeah, that's really helpful. I mean, this is just what you were talking to earlier. You walk into a church, you can't help but look around the room to see if anybody looks like you, right? This is always going on in the background, at least, and more often in the foreground, probably, right? Mm -hmm. Well, this has uh, been a really uh, good conversation, Jamar. I appreciate it. We're about out of time here. Maybe uh, in closing, let me ask, what do you... What do you hope the future of American Christianity and race looks like? Project project yourself ahead to the end of your career, maybe. Imagine that you're fully satisfied with what's been accomplished. Paint a little <laughs> picture for us of what that world would look like, if you would. You were giving my powers of imagination a lot of credit. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's tough to imagine. Uh, but if we use our prophetic imagination, as Walter yeah, Brueggemann yeah. says, um, I think there's going to be new churches and new institutions because it's really hard to turn around existing institutions that weren't focused on racial justice from the foundation. So I think there uh, we would look back, particularly on the 2010s and 2020s, as a sort of flowering of, of innovation and entrepreneurship, even within Christian circles, uh, that regardless of the, the entity's focus, um, would understand the importance and the necessity of diversity in unity uh, from the ground up. I think there would be um, 
much it would be much a much more common experience. My hope and my goal is simple and is based a lot on my experience of, of feeling alienated in churches. My hope and my goal is that any person of any race or ethnicity could walk into any Christian converse, congregation and feel like they're home. Hmm. That feeling of welcome, that feeling of accept, even if they're the only one, right? But understanding, oh, we value you for who you are, and you don't have to check your culture or your history or your race at the door. We want you to bring all of that, just like God wants you to bring all of that into God's presence. We want to bring all of that into our presence too. And then lastly, I think it would be um, we have a lot more black ownership. And I mean that both in the economic sense and in the sort of cultural sense um, and, and in terms of power, right? Like a big challenge for white people is going to be to to help without being visible, um, to help without sort of uh, putting oneself in front and saying, look at my good works. Uh, so, so that means empowering black people and other people of color to own the business or to, to, to give them the money or, or finance their endeavor, but let them have on gets back to that conversation on trust that I was talking about before. And um, to be the sort of silent partner in certain ways of racial justice so that what, what would be the result is, is, is black people um, not always having to go and rely on other people, but, but having the resources uh, to do for ourselves, the resources that were and still are being denied to us in so many ways. So mm. in broad strokes. Um, well, that's a beautiful picture. May it be so. We uh, pray with you and uh, work actively with you. I hope uh, many of our listeners here will uh, read the books, go to the witness and make a donation and empower uh, the black community in, in those ways that really need to happen. I would love it if they also followed me on my newsletter. If you want to see my more recent writings, books take a long time to write, but I have more to say in between. And you can go to jamartisby.substack.com, jamartisby.substack.com, subscribe for free. Or if you want to support my work, you can uh, sign up for a paid subscription. So that's another way to keep track. Very good. Uh, Jamar, thanks so much for talking to me here today. Um, I'd be uh, pleased and proud to stand with you anytime, anywhere, and support the things that you're supporting. I appreciate that so much. Had so much fun on this. I appreciate you. Language of God is produced by BioLogos. It has been funded in part by the Fetzer Institute, the John Templeton Foundation, and by individual donors and listeners who contribute to BioLogos. Language of God is produced and mixed by Colin Hugerworth. That's me. Our theme song is by Breakmaster Cylinder. BioLogos offices are located in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in the Grand River Watershed. If you have questions or want to join in a conversation about this episode, find a link in the show notes for the BioLogos Forum, or visit our website, biologos.org, where you will find articles, videos, and other resources on faith and science. Thanks for listening.